All right, we're going to be in 1 John, if you have a Bible, chapter 2, John chapter 2, verse 15, 16 and 17. Okay, I'm going to pray. Father, please take this time and make this time exactly what you want it to be. Father, help people to hear the words that you want them to hear, the still small voice of your spirit just speaking your truth to exactly what people need. Father, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Do you love him? One of my favorite movies that came out long before most of you were born, Fiddler on the Roof. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? Oh, good, good. And one of my favorite songs in Fiddler on the Roof just goes great with what I want to talk about this morning, so I'm going to read it for you. It's, Do You Love Me? And it starts with Tevier um, talking to his wife, Goldie, about their daughter, Hoddle. Goldie, I have decided to give Perchik permission to become engaged to our daughter, Hoddle. Goldie, what? He's poor. He has nothing, absolutely nothing. He's a good man, Goldie. I like him. And what's more important, Hoddle likes him. Hoddle loves him. So what can we do? It's a new world, a new world. Love, Goldie. Do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Goldie, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milk to the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Goldie, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. She says, I was shy. I was nervous. So was I. But my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Goldie, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? 
for 25 years. I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Then you love me? I suppose I do. And I suppose I love you too. And then together, it doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. Do you love him? That's the question I want you to be thinking about this morning. God, do you really love him? You know, I think it's a hard question for us to answer and and maybe hard for us even to be honest about and even to maybe know that we're being honest about it as we answer the question because our understanding of love has become so confused and even, I think, our ability to admit what or who we love has become compromised. I mean, I think most of us, of course I love him. Do we love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength? Not the fickle, emotional love of the Jews that God describes in Hosea 6.4 when God describes their love as the morning mist. Is that what your love is like? (laughs) You know, you're crazy about him today and forget about him tomorrow? Not the sensual love of, of a boy saying to, girl, to a girl, you know, if you love me, you will let me. And, and not even the brotherly love of, of Peter, uh, just kind of at the, at the end of Jesus' life, just before uh, he returned to heaven. And, and Jesus asked him, do you love me? Do you really love me? And, and Peter was only able to affirm for Jesus, a brotherly love, not this heart, soul, mind, and strength love. A loyal love, a strong love. And, and this is what I want us to understand as we talk about do you love him this morning? This is what I mean. An allegiance to him, a craving for him, a longing for him that affects and impacts every part of our beings, heart, soul, mind, and strength, our affections, our emotions, our thinking, our time, our energy, our pocketbook, and our conversation. Maybe this will help to think about it in this way. Is it him or is it something or someone else that you dream about? That you talk about with one another in excited conversation, that you spend your time and your energy learning about, that you spend your money on, that you get all worked up over and are just plain crazy about and and always want to be spending time with. Do you love him? You know, the reason it's such an important question... uh, is because there is something else that is seriously vying for our love. And I think for many of us already has our love. And it's what we read about here in 1 John 2.15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Two, two really important things I want us to, to see in this passage this morning, and, and it's so concrete, as you know, that Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Two important things that I want us to understand this morning. First of all, I want us to understand what is meant by the world when it says do not love the world. And the second thing is why are we not to love it? Why? Why not? So what is the world we're not to love? I, I think immediately some of us could think, well, does that mean I, I can't love scuba diving? Horse riding? I, should I not ride my motorcycle to California next week? Should we not enjoy a nice dinner out at a fancy restaurant? Or evenings playing games with friends or donuts? Wow, that's a hard one. What does it mean? Well, you know, we're given the answer in our text, and it's really clear. It says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. And that's just John's simple definition of the love of the world that he's talking about. And the good news is, is, we, is in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was, was tempted, was attacked by these same temptations and uh, in a way that we can understand what they are and then how he overcame them. So I'd like you to turn to Matthew 4. We're going to come back to 1 John as we look at why we're not to love the world. But to start with, we're going to start in Matthew 4 in understanding what this world is that we're not to love, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Matthew 4 as we come to verse 1, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's fasted for 40 days, and he's hungry. Takes, takes us about 40 minutes, right? 40 days, and he's hungry. And so the devil enters seeing an opportunity to get Jesus to sin and disqualify himself from being the Messiah uh, the savior of the world that he came to be. So the first one is the lust of the flesh. Notice in verse 3, the devil says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. This is, I'm going to say, worldly love number one. If I was to give one word to it, I'd say appetite. Appetite. Do not love satisfying your body more than finding God satisfying. Appetite. Do you get that? Do not love satisfying your body more than finding God satisfying. In Philippians 3.19, Paul describes those who live according to the lust of the flesh as those, he literally says, whose God is their stomach whose God is their appetite, meaning they live to eat. 
That could be some of us here this morning. <laughs> they love to satisfy, they live to satisfy their fleshly desires. It's, it's like the t-shirt I saw a man wearing many years ago, right on the front emblazoned, it says, I live for lust. He, probably one of the most honest people that, that lives in, on the earth, right? <laughs> I live for lust. Meaning, the focus is on satisfying fleshly desires. If it feels good, do it, right? Those of us who are slaves to our fleshly desires for food, for alcohol, for drugs, for sex, for exercise, for thrill-seeking, video games, TV, music, and could go on and on, whatever, whatever we use to satisfy our fleshly desires, what we crave for, what we long for, the lust of the flesh. Notice how Jesus answers in verse 4. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If I were to, to capture the antidote for appetite, for living in, according to our fleshly desires, the antidote is simply what Jesus says here is truth. Is truth. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Deuteronomy 8, 8, 1 to 3, that Jesus is quoting here when he says man shall not live on bread alone, it says that God caused the Jews in the wilderness to go hungry and then he fed them. You get that? He caused them to be hungry and then he fed them in order to teach them that their cravings their true cravings were spiritual, not physical, and could only be satisfied through God. Jeremiah wrote, your words were found, God's words were found, and he says, I ate them, and they became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And, and this is our, it's only God's truth that can truly satisfy us and set us free. Do you believe that this morning? It is only God's truth that can truly satisfy us and set us free. You know, the, fe the flesh stimulates, doesn't it? But it does not satisfy. We all know that. Man, the, the desires of the flesh, the demands of the flesh, it, it stimulates us and it, it causes craving, but it doesn't satisfy. The antidote to living according to the lust of the flesh Simply what Jesus is saying is living according to God's truth. But you might ask the question, well, how can God's truth satisfy my fleshly cravings? That almost doesn't make sense, right? How can God's truth satisfy my fleshly cravings and free me from my addictions? And this is the heart of it. It's remembering that our true cravings, our true cravings are not physical but spiritual. And they're not satisfied physically, but spiritually. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In Psalm 63, it's, it's one of my favorite passages. Listen to this, and it I think it captures it better than anything else. As it puts together 
spiritual desires and fleshly desires. Psalm 631, David says, and he's in the desert of Judah. It's a dry, barren place, but notice he, he puts it in the context of God. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. You can say, I crave for you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And he's in the desert, but he's, he's, he's figuratively saying in a world that is dry and parched and doesn't have anything to quench my spiritual thirst. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. And this is the point I want you to get. He says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Have you experienced that? Do you you know that? Do you realize that? Do you love him? Have you found him to satisfy you more than any of these other things that our fleshly desires promise but fail to satisfy? True satisfaction isn't ever going to be found by another donut, a beer, a hit, a line, another night of video games or watching the Seahawks, But craving Jesus, this is what I want you to get, but craving Jesus as you would crave those things. Craving Jesus as you would crave those things. The second one, the lust of the eyes. If you read on in Matthew 4, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. The highest point of the temple with the people below And he says, if you're the son of God, if you're really the Messiah, throw yourself down. I mean, in the midst of all these thousands of people, what a a scene it'll make. Because he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And and the people are going to be amazed. (laughs) You are the Messiah. Worldly, Worldly love number two. Acceptance. First is appetite, craving the desires of the flesh. The second, I think, is craving acceptance. And, and this is the do not love. It says, do not long for and love people's acceptance more than God's. Do not love the world. Do not love and long for people's acceptance more than God's. We're, we're constantly longing for acceptance, aren't we? And approval of others. Do you find that to be the way you are? As you're with your friends and you just, it's like, you want the acceptance of this person? You know, the silly things we do to be accepted by other people, right? People think, people that we think are, are pretty or important or powerful or have influence. It's like, he looked at me. Did you see that? He looked at me. I think she likes me. 
And I tell you, one of the most miserable evenings of my teenage life was a few years ago was working my way to sit next to a girl at a youth group dinner who I thought was the stuff. And I wanted so desperately to be accepted by her that she would look at me and think I was something. And it was miserable. I mean, what a better way for Jesus to experience the people's acceptance of him as Messiah to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and for the angels to swoop in and and rescue him. And and the people will say, wow, wow, that's, that's amazing. Isn't that how the lust of the eyes works in our lives? If I make the team, then I'll be accepted. Maybe if I do an amazing blob, then I'll be accepted. If I drive a cool car, or even better, a cool motorcycle, you got to do that to be cool. I'll be accepted. And I'll be appreciated. If I have a higher paying job, then people will accept me. The never ending pursuit to be accepted, to be approved. Unless we believe what God has said. And Jesus responds in in verse 7 of Matthew 4. He says, Jesus answered him, The devil, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the heart of it is don't don't doubt him. The antidote to craving acceptance and longing for people's acceptance and approval is trusting God. You know, the, the devil distorted Psalm 91, which he quotes here, where at the beginning of Psalm 91, what it literally says is, and this is how it begins, Psalm 91, verse 9, it says, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling place, then no harm will overtake you. It's not testing him and doubting him, and, but it's trusting him. It's trusting him. The antidote to living according to the lust of the eyes is living in full confidence of God's acceptance of us, of me as his child. You know, I no longer worry about the acceptance of others, and I spent much of my growing up life wanting and craving and looking for the acceptance of others. But I don't worry about the acceptance of others anymore because I'm absolutely secure in the fact that God accepts me completely, fully, as his child accepts me. I don't have to do anything to gain anyone's acceptance. I'm completely accepted in Christ. The third one, pride of life. As we continue on, verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Obviously, this is a supernatural event. I don't think Mount Everest, you can see everything from Mount Everest. Supernaturally gives Jesus a glimpse of all the glory, all the splendor of the world. And he says, all this I will give you if you will bow down. 
and worship me. Worldly love number three, I would say, appetite, acceptance, importance. We want to be somebody, don't we? Isn't that one of our cravings is, is to be somebody, to be important? In Jesus' case, you know, what he came to the earth to regain for us, what was lost to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, and now he has the opportunity to get it. The, the, the devil is called the God of this world. It's his. Humanity abandoned it in Genesis chapter 3 when they believed the lie of the devil. And Jesus came to restore, to regain it. And he can get it right now and avoid the cross if he just worships the devil. But isn't that what we often do in order to become somebody? We end up worshiping something or someone. We go into debt to possess things. We smooth, schmooze. I love doing that now. We kiss up to people. We join clubs or any number of things in order to be somebody, something. It's a wearying and it's an empty pursuit. It's like the story Jesus told, the parable he told of a a dinner where people were vying uh, to be at the head table. And uh, so somebody kind of worked their way to the head table and now there's somebody. And then just before the dinner starts, what happens? Somebody more important shows up and, and and the host says, do you mind scooting down a little bit? To another table, humiliating. The pursuit of trying to be somebody. Ever been there? The important one, you know, in a conversation and everybody's gathered around you and you're the important one and then, and then what happens? Somebody more important, more cool shows up and all of a sudden you're not so important. The antidote, notice, Jesus says in verse 10, he says, Away from me, Satan, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The antidote to craving importance is simply worship. Worship. Worship gives us true perspective. True perspective. It humbles our hearts and and reminds us of what is really important. God, God, who, who said, I am who I am. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. There is no one like him. He alone is God. And worship lifts up our eyes and gets our eyes off of everything that we're craving and longing for that is so fleeting and, and so empty. And it, it lifts up our eyes to see him. And worship him and be reminded of of what is important. He is. And to be reminded that I'm his child. I'm his. The God of the universe. The creator of the universe. I'm his. The antidote to living according to the pride of life is living a life of worship. I am his and he is mine, it says in, in the Song of Songs. He delights in me and I delight in him. 
I'm his child. I'm his heir. I'm a co-heir with Jesus. And all that is brought into perspective when we worship. So to conclude, if you want to flip back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, just really quickly, why are we not to love the world? I mean, it almost seems that I think most of us, is it not true that what we really are looking for is the best of both worlds, right? A little bit of love in God and a little bit of love in the world, and you get, you get them both. You get to satisfy the desires of the flesh and, and, and people's approval and, and, and being important, and, but at the same time, you know, love God. Why are we not to love the world? There's three things Jesus says really quickly. Look at 1 John 15. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. That's number one. And what John is saying here, reason number one is you can't love both. It's that simple. You can't love both the world and God at the same time. You cannot be dominated by the desires of the flesh and by, by a desire for God at the same time. The only way we can do that is if in our minds we cheapen the concept of love. We cannot be dominated by the desires of the world and by desire for God at the same time. In James chapter 4, listen to what it says. James says, you adulterous people, meaning you unfaithful people, don't you know that friendship with the world means hostility against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's pretty clear. You can't love God in the world. You think you're able to do it? How much of your energy of your money, of your enthusiasm, your excitement, your time, affection, is God getting? Or is something or someone else getting? It's one of the reasons why the Bible is so clear when it says we shouldn't be unequally yoked. Uh, as a married couple, as a couple looking at, looking at marriage, because if, if one has desires for the world and the other has desires for God, it just it doesn't work doesn't fit together. You can't love both. Reason number one. Reason number two, notice, he says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it comes not from the Father, but from the world. Reason number two, the love of the world isn't real love. It's not genuine. It's fake. It's an imitation that can't satisfy. It, it will leave you empty, and we know that. It's like eating a fake Twinkie. It's just not the same. Or buying a fake Rolex from a street, street vendor. It, it'll disappoint. The love of the world, it's not the real love. And, and, and number three, lastly, it says, the world and its desires are passing away. They're fleeting. They're temporary. You know, it's like... It just, it's, it's so, it's so stimulating and, and seems to be so satisfying and, and then it's gone, it's over and it leaves you empty. That, that's what the whole book of Song of Solomon is about. The emptiness 
that all the allure of the world leaves us with. Reason number three, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Would you buy a car from a salesperson that says, this is an amazing car, you, you will love it. It'll do everything you want it to do, but it's only good for three months. 3,000 miles, that's it. You wouldn't buy that car. And yet how many of us are pouring our money and our energy and our passion and our enthusiasm and our affections into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the desires of the flesh, the craving for the acceptance of others, the approval of being somebody in the world's eyes when it doesn't last. And it'll just leave you empty. You know, literally what it says, it says the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does, the will of God abides. It, it's, this, it's this sense of just being at home with him, being in him, and abiding in him, and remaining in him, knowing that he alone is the one that satisfies. Do you love him? You know, just... To finish up, why does God say not to love the things of the world? Is it because he's a spoiled sport, really? <laughs> he just doesn't want us to have fun? No. He offers a greater joy. That's what we've got to get. He offers a greater joy. He's not a spoiled sport. He's wanting us to have a greater joy. Is it because he's jealous? He doesn't want us loving the world? He wants us to love him? Yes, he is. He's jealous for us because he wants us to have the best. What lasts, what, what won't fade, what won't leave us empty again. He wants for us himself and what only he can provide. Do not long after the things of this world, the things that will just temporarily make you feel good, make you feel temporarily like you're accepted or somebody important long after God. Let's pray. Father, ah, the, the things around us, the things of this world, boy, they just so clamor for us to crave after them. They're... they're they're so glamorous and, and the world makes them so glamorous and so attractive and like it's what we got to have and we got to have it now and, and it'll be just what we need and yet God we know we, and we know from your word this morning that, that it, it'll just leave us empty. It won't really satisfy. Oh God, help us to be a people that, that hungers after your truth, that trusts you, that worships you and knows you to be the one that truly satisfies. In Jesus' name, amen.